Hi, I'm Mark Anelsky, your host of the Economics of Wellbeing podcast. I'm a well-being economist and author of the award-winning book, The Economics of Happiness, and my new book, An Economy of Wellbeing, Common Sense Tools for Building Genuine Wealth and Happiness. I believe the most important aspiration in life is well-being and genuine happiness. But by happiness, I mean the original Greek definition, which literally means well-being of your spirit or well-being of your soul. Did you know that the word wealth is a 13th century Old English word that literally means the conditions of well-being? In this series of podcasts, I will explore a wide range of subjects related to building a better world based on flourishing well-being and the pursuit of genuine happiness. I'm joined by special guests to talk about the development of a new economy based on well-being. What if improving well-being for all became the ultimate purpose of business and the economy? In these podcasts, you will learn how to incorporate the principles of well-being into your personal and family life, your business, and your community. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My next guest on the Economics of Well-Being podcast is Yannick Baudouin. Yannick Baudouin is the Director General for Ontario and Northern Canada for the David Suzuki Foundation. He's schooled in economics for transition to socially and ecologically sustainable societies, in social innovation processes, and transformational leadership, marine and economic geology. What a fascinating mix. Yannick holds a Master's of Arts in Economics for transition to ecological economics from the Schumacher School in the UK and a PhD in marine geology. He was a former chief scientist with GRID Arendelle, a United Nations environmental program. Yannick has witnessed the flaws and failings of old economic thinking and practice. He sees an opportunity emerging for Canada to lead the way in innovating a new well-being economy designed to benefit all people and nature. Yannick and I have the pleasure of working on a new platform for an economy of well-being and operating model for Canada, what we call well-being-based budget, budgeting, similar to what New Zealand has pursued in the last year, and what countries like Iceland, Finland are now exploring as well. Thanks for joining me. David Suzuki Foundation going on two years now. Um, you know, my my background is a bit dual. You know, I'm, a, I'm originally a geologist, a marine geologist, spent a lot of time at the bottom of the oceans watching how life interacts with with uh, rocks and, and all that, and it's still wow. a passion of mine. You um, actually got a job in marine biology, yes. Marine geology. <laughs> geology, yeah. Geology, yeah. <laughs> so, which in, in a way kind of, paved i think the road to looking at economics and from a much more systems perspective mm. as a field you know a geologist you, you had to put all the pieces together to figure out a little part of the puzzle there was really more a phenomenological kind of science kind of naturally just mm -hmm. earth is the earth right as a whole um rather than breaking things down to little machine parts and so when I eventually uh, went back to school a few years ago at Schumacher College in the UK, um, you know, and, and which is you know a, a beautiful and deeply frustrating place, right? You get all the, <laughs> the 
just like, what? Um, but it, 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 the, that economics that was being taught or, or discussed there made so much sense because it was all about lived experience. And like you're saying, relationships, right? The, the relationships between di different part of these systems, the relationship with between the negotiable, everything that's social in an economy is negotiable. It's human, right? So we can negotiate that and change the norms, whatever we want, versus everything that's non-negotiable. The planet won't negotiate, right? It, it has its parameters um, and you can't, you can't magically make more um, minerals appear, more raw materials appear. It just doesn't, doesn't magically happen. It's finite. And, and so then so much of the, the journey there was about, again, looking at this about how do we have, how do we create a system that serves us rather than what we're doing now or pre-COVID, which was really about serving the system. Mm -hmm. The system is, right? This, this ambiguous idea. So, you know, coming to the foundation was, uh, you know, okay, many steps in the journey. You know, I was industry for almost a decade. And then in Norway, had, in Norway, uh, no international. So, international. so mining industry, uh, Canada based, but a bit of international work. And then I moved into the UN for, for about 12 years in Norway, um, which also opened up an entirely different angle about, wait a minute, how come they don't do economics the way we do? Or they right, don't do, right. I shouldn't say that, they do, they, they do economics about the same way, but they don't do economy the same way. Mm. So the idea of um, government having a role in your life is a normal cultural expectation in Scandinavia, um, whereas our cousins down south really see the opposite, and Canada's kind of in the middle ground sometimes, right? Yeah, right, right. Sometimes, and sometimes, so we're kind of the middle ground. But it's interesting to immerse yourself over a decade in a culture that does things differently and then listening to others saying you can't do anything differently. It's just the way it is. And it's like, but, but, but all these countries are doing it differently. Germany does it differently. differently. Singapore does it differently. Singapore right. does it differently. So people are doing it differently. So I yeah. think it was, a, it was a great kind of circle coming back after gathering these stories from all around the world. Uh, cultural stories, you know, um, from a UN work, conservation stories, economic stories. And then kind of come back to Canada and, and saying, okay, like how do we stitch some of these together? Um, but in a Canadian way, like it, it's not going to be copy pasteable, right? So, um, so that's where the foundation and myself are at it these days. Yeah. So you and I have been working on advocating for a well-being economic model in this COVID pandemic um, and, and post, uh, hopefully post pandemic. Uh, what's, what's your vision for what's possible for Canada and, can you outline can your thoughts and ideas on what a well-being economy or economic model might look like for Canada? Yeah, and you know, it's again such a nuanced and, and complex question in a way. And I, I tend to start it when I interact with Canadians over the last year pre-COVID was really much about figuring out where where the average Canadian um, connected with when it came to the economy, the understanding, the experience of it, and and then just sort of putting it out there like. You know, the first question I asked in a town hall was, well, what's the purpose of the Canadian economy today? And I was waiting to write a whole bunch of things. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I heard silence. So then I turned around and there's all these faces thinking and thinking. And I was like, wow, okay, so wait a minute. Uh, let me rephrase. Well, what would, you, what would you expect or what would you like the Canadian economy uh, to be doing, to be, to be providing? 
oh, then, then it was pages full. Like we were just right. I was writing like mad. And what I noticed is all the answers and there, this is pretty universal anywhere in the world. I've done this. Uh, the answers are qualitative. They're all about some kind of quality, right? The quality of the education, the quality of, of, of my life, the quality of the medical uh, and health, quality, quality, quality. And no, no one refers to quantities. And so that's- Or GDP. And I think that was a key reflection uh, in our last conversation was, you know, economists are good at quantitative, uh, you know, metrics. We, we swim in that. But the qualitative side of the subjective experiential side tends to sort of be- you know, given, well, less attention. Uh, and yet you'd struck a nerve there with, with that, um, with that consultation. Well, I, I think it got eyebrows going up. I mean, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. We're, you know, Western culture is quantitative and you can go back in history to figure out why not. It's not mm-hmm. our, you know, long ago, but we, we went down hundred miles an hour down the quantitative path. Right. And anything that's, that's subjective or emotional or intuitive, that's hogwash. And so the only way to, uh, to sense your way through the world and to make sense of the world is, is brain and quantities. And, and so what, what's interesting in that is when you then look at other cultures, uh, you know, I use Bhutan as an example. It gets laughed at a lot because they, they apparently like happiness and no one <laughs> wants to measure happiness, which usually gets like, no, 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 I want happiness. So, but Bhutan is a very culturally distinct from us, very, very separate. And so their entire economics, their way of thinking about an economy, completely different. And, yeah. and, and it's not as quantitative. Actually, it's very little quantitative, right? It's, and, it's, and a Buddhist and a Buddhist kingdom. So rooted in yeah. the notion of right, right livelihood, right, you know, living. Yeah. So it proves again to, to me what it shows again is how cultural perspectives are supposed to shape how we think about economies and then what kind of rules we then, you know, equations and algorithms we then put into play to support that. So, so again, you know, I like more to start from the angle of being an economer, right? Economic philosopher, Mm -hmm. perhaps the technical, sometimes we go too quickly down. Well, if conventional capitalism doesn't work, let's go with ecological economics. And here's 50 tables to explain that but you've still jumped a step. You still haven't sat with Canadians and say, what's the purpose? Like, this is all together. What's the purpose of the Canadian economy? What do we want it to be? And then from there, start to kind of storyboard out. Well, it might be slightly different in Quebec than it is in BC or Alberta or Ontario. Cool. All right. So we have some universals and then we have some geographic. Oh, and like we have 180 languages spoken in Toronto. So we have the whole world here to share their cultural perspective on what an economy should deliver. Cool. So now we start to have these pockets. Then you might get into the, how do we stitch this together in a model and a framework? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's kind of a cart in front of the horse. We have to be very careful that as we want to transition, we don't just jump right from model to model. We first have to go from a, a model that's clearly not working so well for us uh, to then this period of saying, okay, what do we actually want out of a model and then creating a model? Um, yeah. So that this raises, I mean, there's so many issues we can go down the rabbit hole on, but um, one of the things that I like to focus on is, you know, we, if we can imagine a more circular economy where we're trading within our ecological biocapacity, uh, I'm an ecological economist, and I would say that argument is the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the ecosystem. Uh, that would, under some notion of natural laws, would necessitate that we live in harmony with the ecological 
uh, resilience uh, of the, say, the Toronto watershed where you're living, or the Edmonton watershed, North Saskatchewan watershed. What um, what kind of economy do you envision going forward? As I think what we've seen now is the the fragility of a global you know trade system, just in time inventories, uh, when we might actually be forced to uh, think more locally, act more bioregionally. Um, do you think that's something that Canadians um, are open to explore and what kind of economic model does that suggest to you? Well, and, and there's already been some seeds planted, uh, even at the political levels uh, at provincial where the idea that we over-globalized is now openly being <laughs> right. Not necessarily using those words, but when, when you have a uh, premier saying, you know, we can't let this happen again, we have to be able to produce our own uh, health uh, equipment. So that's a recognition that we've over-globalized some things, uh, especially things that are really, really important to our immediate well-being. So nutrition, food, uh, healthcare, um, if, if we're highly dependent on waiting for something 50,000 miles away and three borders that are going to close, we have a problem of over-globalization. I think it's one of those, those, those labels we have to, like for me, it's not, it's not a, a, a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Globalization has amazing benefits, right? When countries collaborate together on, on, on multilateral things, um, you, you get amazing perspectives to address challenges and solutions. Right. But what was the issue of where is it that we've done over versus uh, then finding that that balance? Just like in Canada, we, we say circular economy, oh, it's all about you know, consumption. It's actually not about consumption. It's about overconsumption. You know, mm -hmm. oh, sustainability, mm -hmm. we, 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 it's all about uh, stopping the oil and gas and the mining. Well, probably, yes, stopping the oil and gas, we already know. But let's say in mining, it's not, mining's not the problem, it's overmining is the problem. You know, so, so I think it's, it's making sure that as we're, as we're going down paths of saying, okay, something, we went too far down this route, we have to find a balance. It's not going to zero, it's finding the balance. So I think even as, as you know, let's say transitional economists or, or a, you know, a bit more unconventional economists, we're, it's trying to pro provide and help Canadians create that new narrative where it isn't a zero-sum game and it isn't about giving everything up in order to have this strange utopic life. It's, it's where is it that we went overboard and why did we go overboard? Right. So why are we over-consuming? Well, because some someone, and again, there's a lot in circular economy, what's great is there's a lot of companies doing fantastic attempts, do their best, right? You know, you know, trying to reduce waste, be more efficient, and that's great. But their business model is still, they still need to sell you more stuff. Well, okay, change the model again, right? Why is it that you get rewarded only for more stuff sold rather than better stuff sold? Mm, right, right. right? Mm. The title of our little working paper, Better Back. Um, yeah, Build Back Better. Build Back Better. I always stumble on the three Bs. The three Bs. It's like the business, Better Business Bureau. But, you know, better, better is a compelling idea versus more. Um, not, not that more wasn't useful. But I think as we, um, with the two months we, we spent self-isolating, I think we are self-reflecting on what is a better life versus um, yeah. does more stuff bring us happiness? And I think each of us realizes, do you, do you see a, um, I mean, part of the, the issue with economics is there is an underlying narrative, uh, call it neoliberal, 
it's a, there's a there's a belief system, a philosophy. There are laws that are maybe un, unwritten in capitalism, uh, and and so the narrative we are sort of born into and we climatize to. When when you're listening to Canadians, do you what kind of narrative when they say well, what kind of vision do you have for an economy? In other words, what kind of economic life do you aspire to have that that constitutes maybe some level of happiness or um, what what do you what do you I mean in context is this well-being theme what are you what's your hope in that the new narrative might actually emerge here and be implemented well I mean I think in a way what this disruption has done is led governments to be highly attuned to the very individual level mm -hmm. and how can then government deliver on that so so instead of the macro kind of leading the way it really has been flipped now that the micro is leading the way, the, the personal, the household, the small business, it's leading the policy front. Now, some will argue, well, it's a temporary thing, and, and once, once things are back on track, we'll get the economy going again. And it's like, but why can't that be the economy, right? Why can't that relationship of, of the deeply personal, the needs, the essential, what matters to, to Canadians at a very micro level, become the driver of rebooting or not, not rebooting actually completely right redesigning that that economic system at the moment they put it on pause right well, they literally I, have, yeah sorry that's a critical uh, issue because we know how gdp is baked in a sense uh, we know the recipe which is you know you survey households and businesses in terms of their their expenditures their their activities and then you from that sample, you derive a GDP estimate. So that's, but our argument, at least what I've been, you know, we, we've both been talking to the associate finance minister's office saying, you know, and, and it's great looking for new ideas. I said, well, what, what would it take to do a national survey right now or every quarter to ask a sentiment question, uh, perceptual well-being questions, which can then marry on to the household spending you know, how much are you spending on food? And, you know, not that, again, as you said, not that, you know, buying from Amazon is good or bad or, or buying local is good or bad, but somehow getting a sense of how people's uh, feelings and sentiment is, is a powerful way of honoring the individual um, choices we're all making. And hopefully we're taking care of our neighbors, we're helping our neighbors. I heard one of the, the wealthiest businessmen in Singapore the other day say, when he was asked, well, how can we, how can we respond in this self-isolated economy uh, as business people? And he said, well, one interesting thing might be to actually pay attention to your neighbor, neighbor's restaurant and see the lineup outside your neighbor's restaurant and actually be generous enough to say, you know, you might want to go over to Joe's diner here uh, because Joe also needs to live, right? Uh, and we, we can't do it with half the tables that we're serving. So wouldn't that be an interesting economic system where we actually say, look, I'm, I'm paying attention to my neighbor who might not have the best food, but at least they have a family to feed as well. So I think that's an exciting kind of reflection on what you just said about the, you know, the, that the individual, the household oikos, right? Well-being is really the, the building block and not just these models from which we drive like macro measures like GDP. Well, and we, of course, we, we live in a time where we actually have the tools to do that now, right? When, 
when GDP was invented and, and kind of became the dominant piece, um, we got addicted to it because of its simplicity, right? Mm -hmm. Policymaker, uh, and and you all have to make a decision based on one number going up or you know as much as you can. That's pretty simple, right? Okay, I can do that. Yeah. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it's, it was you know 1950s, 60s. We didn't have information technology like we do today. You know, didn't have internets, didn't have smartphones. So you, you, you had to, if you're looking at a whole country, you're trying to make decisions based on the simplest possible tool. Now, of course, you know, if you want to do kind of like you're saying, getting a direct pulse on a variety of fronts, right? And, and from a variety of sources. I mean, we, we have the ability of, and the architecture and the technology to sort of get out there and bring that complexity into our decision making. And even, even in a way, aggregating some of it to a level where, all right, you know, this is not so difficult, right? Like, as, you know, we were talking about Bhutan earlier. It's not a complicated system, you know? They have their four pillars, their nine domains, they do their active surveying, and then they make decisions. Right. And they get a score, you know, a score of nine or above, yay, score of nine. And they have, they have regional well-being indices that can... Yeah, they can look at the regional differences, right? And it's nothing new in Canada. We've had the Canadian Index of Well-Being for a long time. We have regional, you know, Nova Scotia and, and, and their work on, on well-being indexes. You know, so it's not new knowledge. We have all the knowledge we need. Where, um, where's, where's the barrier then, Yannick, do you, do you believe? I mean, we, we can wax eloquently about people's resistance to change uh, inside the bureaucracies, but, like, where do you feel as the... I mean, as we said earlier, like we're not on Michael Enright's show. We're not on the national tonight. Um, not that that's important per se, but I think if we want to have a, uh, an, an informed and maybe a, a progressive conversation uh, of best ideas. Um, yeah. I mean, that's all, I mean, you, you can look at the entire environmental sector or the social charity sector and we'll also wonder where the barriers, I mean, <laughs> There's also a challenge from those sectors, right? We tend to bombard decision ma makers with 50,000, you know, different requests. Like we need, mm -hmm. and, and I get it. All these, all these issues are actually extremely important. We're not always re recognizing though, the root cause of a lot of the injustice that we have in the world, whether it's social or ecological, right. uh, the imbalances. And those root causes really do come down to that system, that operating system we like to call our economies, but it gets put into a little box. Oh, that's a social issue. That's not economics. Oh, that's an environmental issue. That's not economics. But, but the reason they exist, these failures, the reason why we need a, you know, a ministry of environment or a social ministry is because they're externalities, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so sometimes the barriers are, are, we'll come at a decision maker with all our individual passion. Uh, and that, that and again, it's not to devalue one for the other, but then we're not necessarily allies to ourselves either, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not able to kind of affect the root systems that are leading to these exponential externalities and we're all having to tackle them in different ways, then we're putting a lot of band-aids, but we're not actually solving you know, the, 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 you know the, the, the core program that's leading to things like climate change or social injustice, inequity, um, you know, all those different aspects in our society, so many of them can be literally, you know, drawn right back down to that basic program. We call it GDP, but that program is how quickly do you convert nature to money using the cheapest possible labor? 
Right. Isn't that amazing? We, just, I, if we can spend just five minutes and we could probably, from that algorithm, all the potential inequalities and injustices that can possibly come from just running that in a computer for the last 80 years, you know, roughly. Right. So I think some of the barriers we often point to the decision makers saying, oh, you know, they, they don't know enough. They're not educated enough. Oh, it's the media. Or, you know, I think it also comes down to how we ally uh, in, in these sectors of the want change, but uh -huh. also kind of a recognition. Um, you, you said the word belief earlier. You know, we believe in this system. I still am complicit in this system. I have We're a mortgage. We're right. all complicit, yeah. Absolutely. And, and okay, I've decided to go and kind of raise my own awareness on why this doesn't make sense. Um, but for the most part, this is a faith-based piece. This is religion. And so that's an Thank you. thing yeah. to change, right? You can't go and scientific, the, you know, have a scientific conversation with numbers and expect a change in faith, right? So, so you, have to, you have to be a theologian, uh, an economic theologian to... Uh, one of my I favorite economists was uh, Fanfani, who was the former Italian prime minister. And he said the unique thing about capitalism is it has no original moral code. Yeah. Uh, and I was interesting reflection, no originality, but there is a faith. There is a belief system uh -huh. that underscores the invisible hand, whatever, whoever you want to attribute to, right? Profit maximization, all these kind of beliefs that when you peel back the onion, you realize um, they didn't, originate from the original originators of accounting. I mean, or even Adam Smith. I mean, it's like you read Wealth of Nations again, and it's like, wait a minute, he was talking about, you know, trading and comparative advantage. What does that mean? It's yeah. like, and so yeah, it's fascinating that, yeah, the, the belief system we have um, that we're born into um, almost never gets questioned. At least well, theologians debate faith, you know, and, and uh, we can debate you know, scripture, Buddhists can debate whatever interpretation of Buddha for forever. But it's funny that we don't, we let, we leave alone, right? This, this model that we, we find, um, I guess the word self-evident to be wise, but it's not necessarily wise. Well, and the fear that comes from, from challenging it, right? Even some of its basic concepts. Well, the only way to, to have money in society is, is through debt. Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's totally negotiable. We invented that. Humans did. It's not a law of yeah. nature. We it's, invented money. We invented money. <laughs> you know? So, so it's, it's sometimes, again, words have power, right? We might think, you know, when, when, as an economist, we know that money is one form of currency. So the universal is currency. Right now, we're literally having a transaction, maybe, right? Maybe it's transformational. So this is a smart contract we're having here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so when you have conversations sometimes it's just sort of saying well no money isn't currency it's a form of currency but we invented all of this stuff right these are all human things and they came about in certain ways and different points in time the current system came out of the last great crisis of the 20th century right we invented gdp to win a war um we absolutely post gdp system to make sure we never have another war right that was, that was the only main reason why they all came together down the street from Toronto here, Brenton Woods. Brenton Woods, okay, yeah. You have to have world peace. And how do we do that? Well, the more countries trade, the, the less chance they go to war. Yeah, they kind of got that part right. Everything else was pretty unintended, right? And now even some of those people back then, if they, if they were coming, like, you know, Maynard Keynes, for example, coming back, probably going, 
yeah, now COVID's showing you all the problems <laughs> uh, of going too far down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, so even some of them would come back and say, wow, you guys really overdid it. <laughs> no. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's, isn't that the key is from my accounting background, you know, I would say if we had a proper balance sheet of the, of the nation, we would probably reflect on the liabilities we've racked up, you know, with the environment or social liabilities. Yeah. But because we only operate with an income statement and measure cash flow, GDP, we're blind to the liabilities. You can't operate a company without knowing that you've got depreciation costs on some key assets. Yeah. And um, that should signal investment in maintenance and making sure those liabilities are are mitigated. And I think that's one of the flaws that I see as, as a national accountant. Um, and so it affects everything from monetary policy to how we budget. Um, just just to kind of maybe close on the, uh, one of the, the questions I often ask is like, what gives you hope? But here's a point blank question. If you were the finance minister right now, and we've seen what New Zealand did last year, table the first well-being budget under Jacinda Ardern's uh, coalition government. And we see what's going on in Iceland and Finland. And now in Amsterdam, I think they're, Amsterdam is attempting to adopt some notion of a donut economy or well-being economy. Um, if you were to, to actually help table a well-being budget for Canada, what, what might it say and look like? Yeah, and I think, you know, some of those, you know, the bolder you are, you know, the, the, the better in this case. You, you, yeah. you have to lose, right? You have a system in suspension, and now you're able as a, as a, as a finance minister, uh, let's say the whole cabinet, basically, uh, and government making decisions that are much bolder than going back to just counting our, our little nickels and dimes. So I think, you know, em embracing the fact that we do have the ability to get the pulse of Canadians on, on what it means well and not uh, mm. in different cultural contexts. Um, I think taking advantage of the fact that Canada is probably one of the, if not the most di culturally diverse country in the world, meaning that anytime you have a particular challenge, you can literally look at that challenge from every single cultural lens that you can imagine, which then leads to Canada possibly taking a more leadership role. We're not used, we don't like to be leaders in Canada. We apparently like to follow all the time. Here's a chance to kind of flip that and sort of say, well, we're G7. New Zealand is great. We like to work with you. We want to understand this and we want to elevate that. Our role as a country could be once we need to level these playing fields, right? The Canada can't necessarily completely pivot a system on its own, mm -hmm. but it can start to pave the way to sort of say, well, if we all do some similar actions around uh, well-being accounting or, or however you want to call it, but together as more than one global country, maybe the G6 in this case, maybe not the full G7, um, that'll, that'll have a big repercussion, uh, you know, in, in the signals it gives industry, the signals it gives citizens, um, that it's no longer good enough to just GDP a country. We don't GDP our households, which is, you know, <laughs> go home and minister finance. I'm pretty sure does not go home and GDP his house or home. Um, so what's your liquidity it, stream today, daughter. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> what's your input output table? What's your uh, input output? What, which coefficient are we optimizing today? <laughs> yeah. Which multiplier? <laughs> so, so I think there's a moment in time where, Hey, I, if I were the minister, I would, a really open up to getting concrete advice and, and, and solution building, not just the unilateral, like, oh, this is a solution, but you know, 
open advice. Let's put people together around a table. They did it at the end of the last war for three weeks and they came up with an entire world order. Yes. Basically one cultural lens. Imagine what we, give me three weeks and, and the mandate, right? If I'm the minister of finance, I have the mandate. Can beam Canadians, the post COVID recovery, you know, I don't want to call it war room, but you know what I mean? If at the last war we, we did this, now let's do it better. We have a 2.0 coming up. Get, get people together and say, what does it take to design an economic system um, that actually delivers well-being for Canadians and is not about how quickly do you convert you know, nature to money using cheap labor? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think that would probably be one of, you know, again, learn from the past, but don't go back to it. That, that right, right, right. They could do that in three weeks with no technology and only 730 people around a table. We can do so much better today. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. Awesome. Thank you for having me.